This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Staying at a cabin in the woods, you hear nothing but wind and moaning wood. But when things go completely quiet, you can be sure that something dark and disturbing has arrived. Welcome back to the Darkness Prevails podcast, where people from around the world send me their allegedly true and scary stories, and I share them with you. In today's episode, I've got cabin stories, dark villages, and even darker roads. Enjoy, and be sure to send me your scary stories for narration at darkstories.org. I'm looking for stories about the Smoky Mountains or castles. Be sure to check out eeriecast.com for even more unsettling podcasts like our show, Freaky Folklore. Now, let's begin. Grandpa's death was something else. From Ami Dalari. This story happened seven years ago. I was 21 years old at the time, and to this day, I still don't know what I saw. I was in college when it all started. My last class of the day was over around 8 to 9 p.m., I was tired, but still joking with my friends about how a one-hour class turned into a three-and-a-half-hour speech about STDs. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I felt my chest hurt like never before, and I got really sad. I had a very bad feeling, like impending doom. I got into my car and sped off to home. Physically, I was okay but this devastating feeling was not going away. On my usual way home, I always drive under a poorly illuminated short bridge. When I passed it completely, I saw this dark creature sitting on the hood of my car watching me. It was like some sort of gargoyle, the size of a teen or so, completely dark, almost black, with unspread wings. It wasn't moving at all. It just kept watching me for a minute or so. While this was happening, I just kept driving, telling myself, it's all in my mind. You're scared, that's all, I kept thinking. But deep down I knew, something awful was about to happen. It felt like a confirmation of it. I don't know how, but it was like the gargoyle was telling me with its eyes, telling me 
I'm sorry. It has to be this way. It will be okay. And I just kept speeding home. When I finally got there, it was dark. No lights were on outside, which was weird, because they always let them on all night. Every night. Always. I then realized my brother was looking through the blinds. He opened the door for me. His face was blank of expression. I asked where our parents were, and he said, Grandma called 30 minutes ago. Grandpa fell from the roof of the house. They went there to help. Just like that, the pressure lifted off my chest and everything clicked into place. Doomsday became real to us, because sadly, Grandfather died that night of October due to severe brain traumatism. It truly was devastating. This is not the end, though. As a small parenthesis, I should say that my grandfather was a faithful Catholic, yet he believed and experienced paranormal things in his life. Earlier that year, around May, he was repairing the rooftop of his house when he had a heart attack. He went into surgery, and everything went okay as it could be. The cardiologist told him to wait a month before returning to activities with great effort, so he told Grandma that the roof had to wait a bit, but he was going to finish it. He promised to. I won't go anywhere before I finish it, he told her. Later on in June, one night he kept hearing his dogs barking, so he went outside to check. On the front fence, he saw a homeless man who asked for money to get something to eat. My grandpa told him to wait. He'd get him a plate with warm food. And when he turned around to go back inside the house, the guy grabbed a sawed-off shotgun from his bike and shot him. Then the man ran off without robbing or doing anything else. Grandpa went into surgery. He lost a lot of blood, so he required multiple transfusions. The surgeons had to remove one foot of intestine due to the injury. When we went to see him in the hospital, he somehow was cheerful and said he wasn't in any pain. Then he mentioned that he knew he had protection from above because he felt as if a shield had covered him. He knew he wasn't going to die that night. Even when he was lying on the floor, dragging himself and yelling to my grandmother to call 911 and to help him. Also, during our visit, he said to my grandmother, Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere until I finish that roof and leave you with no problems. The day my grandfather died, he was just finishing the roof. It was the third strike. He somehow kept his promise, yet his time was out. I know it's weird, but I think that the thing I saw was there as a goodbye. I was his favorite after all. Industrial Cryptid From Backwoods in W I live in the Pacific Northwest and am a truck driver by trade. I'm currently a local driver on one of my company's dedicated runs. 
I show up to work at midnight and I'm usually off between 10am to noon. There are a few important details to know. My company has our main yard at the edge of an industrial area that is backed by woods and various farm-type properties. There is a small stretch of woods between the main yard and the warehouse that we load at, and my truck usually is kept at the warehouse, so I park my personal car at the warehouse so I'm not walking as far while carrying all my stuff. Now to the real story. A few weeks ago, I showed up for work, strapped down my load, and was sitting in my truck finishing paperwork when I noticed something run across the driveway in our loading area. I could make out a few little details. It was at least a little bit larger than a normal person, a bit pale and kind of skinny looking, running around on all fours like a bear would. When I looked up to get a good look at it, it was gone and a small section of tree branches were swaying without any wind. I just shrugged and figured it was a regular animal, as well as a combination of still trying to wake up and light playing tricks on me. I figured I must have put a Darkness Prevail style filter on it, since I couldn't see it properly. Later that day, after I made all my stops and had empty cargo racks to bring back, I passed by a side street closer to the interstate, but still in the industrial area. I saw another truck, a freightliner, with a sleeper. It was stuck in the mud. I thought it was odd that they got stuck on a two-lane road with a small stretch of grass before the woodline, but I brushed it off. After dropping off my truck and paperwork, I drove back down, passing the truck again, but this time I could see the opposite side and realized the back half of the sleeper was caved in from the bottom, and the frame of the truck was bent. And it didn't come from a trailer and a jackknife. The truck had been T-boned by something on the road, but that road didn't have the space for a vehicle to go that fast, to hit it and bend the frame like that. Once again, without an explanation, I just shrugged it off and kept going. The next day, my run ended a lot earlier than usual, and I was asked to drop my truck off in the main yard for annual maintenance. So at 04.30 in the morning, I had dropped my truck off and was walking through the woods toward the warehouse to get my car. Shortly after entering the woods, I heard a sound that was similar to a dog's whine, like when it's in trouble or hurt. I turned on my light and scanned around, not finding anything weird, even though the sound was right next to me. As I walked, I could feel something watching me, but I couldn't see it. Even after I left the woods, I could tell that eyes were following me, and they continued to watch me until I got out of eyesight of the woods. Randomly for the next two weeks, day or night, I would feel like something was watching me but it never felt angry and it didn't instigate fear, just curiosity. After getting a glimpse of what I thought were black shiny eyes one morning at least six feet off the ground, I figured it was what I saw before and possibly what had hit that truck. I'm just glad it doesn't seem to want to kill anyone, it just seems to be around. One more snippet. This just happened today as of writing this, 
and it seems to be unrelated to the industrial cryptid. When I pulled up today to my first stop, I saw a set of shoes and a hoodie lying on the ground in the middle of the drive. At first, I thought someone might have dropped them, and I didn't want to run them over with a 70,000-pound truck. So I stopped, I got out, and I noticed the shoes were pointing in the same direction. They were about a shoulder width apart, and the hoodie was directly in front. It was like someone had been lifted from their shoes and had dropped their hoodie from their hand. I later asked my supervisor and the forklift operator, who I always deal with, and they told me that it was like that when they got in, and they're not sure whose they are. I came back about two and a half hours later, and they still didn't know. So right now my money is on aliens, and to anyone that lives in Tacoma, Fife area, do you remember any unusual lights or anything on May 2nd or May 3rd of 2021? Attacked by a wolf-like creature From Kylie T. I don't exactly know what I saw, but they were definitely not like any animal I've ever seen. Everything I'm about to tell you is true, and I've only ever seen two of them in my whole life. Once when I was 10, and the other when I was 14. I'm 27 now. Most people don't believe me when I tell them what I saw, but I know I'm not crazy or was just seeing things because two of my friends also saw it, and it terrified the heck out of them. I live in southern Illinois. When I was younger, I used to hang out with my friend Ty at his grandma's house. My mom was a good friend with his grandma and great-grandma, so we went down there almost every weekend to see them. He and his brother would stay there during the summer, so all their friends, including myself, would go and stay with them for days at a time. As you could imagine, it could get pretty cramped. But they lived in the country, so we were usually outside. At some point, we ended up moving in with his grandma, staying with them for a short time. Their grandma lived in a double-wide trailer and his great-grandma lived in a small house that sat on a little hill about 10 feet from his grandma's trailer. They lived on the outskirts of town and were surrounded by a large set of woods and open cow fields. They had some neighbors, but they were pretty spread out because they were farmers. Behind their homes was another huge field for the neighbor's cows and a long barbed wire fence wrapping around it that seemed like it went on for miles dividing the woods and the property lines. Directly behind his great-grandma's house was the large rusty metal gate. One day as we were getting ready to go outside, we overheard his grandma telling my mom how the neighbors had to move their cows out of the field behind her house because something was attacking and killing their cattle. We could tell by the way they were talking they didn't want us to know about it. Unfortunately for them, we had listened to their entire conversation. As we walked into the living room, they quickly changed the subject. We pretended to hear nothing and started going outside. His grandma spoke up, telling us to stay out of the open field. Ty took the opportunity to ask questions in hopes they'd tell us what was going on. But they didn't. She simply said it was their property 
and we needed to stay out, but we had other plans. When we knew everyone was asleep, me, Ty, and our friend Shay decided to go and investigate these mysterious cow murders. It was around two or three in the morning, and the moon was bright and full in the sky, making it easier for us to get around. The field was very open, and there were hay bells pushed over to the left side of the fence. On the right side were the woods. They went on for miles, and they were very thick. The fence ended just in front of the tree line. We went in, leaving the gate open, and started searching for anything suspicious. For the most part, nothing seemed unusual, beside the cows not being in there. Just before we got to the end of the fence, in front of the tree line, we found a dead, mangled coyote that looked like it hadn't been there for very long. We only started to smell its rotten stench when we got right up on top of it. We didn't know what it was at first. Ty and I shined our flashlights on it and almost couldn't tell it was even a coyote. I had been down to get a better look while Ty stood beside me. We had our backs turned directly in front of the tree line. Shay was about two feet away from the coyote because it made her feel sick, but she was still facing us. By this time, she was starting to get scared and she was ready for us to leave, but we were too busy trying to figure out what had killed this coyote. She repeated herself a couple times that we needed to leave and that she didn't want to do this anymore, but we just kept telling her to hold on. At about that time, we heard something let out this deep, guttural, low growl. It was coming from behind us, in the woods. We all stopped and got real quiet. I looked behind me, still crouched as they shined their lights into the woods. It was silent for a moment. You could hear a pin drop. Then we heard it again, this time. It sounded louder, as if it had gotten closer somehow without us hearing it. I finally stood up and faced the woods, shining my light in the same direction, but I couldn't see anything. What the heck is that? I asked. I was feeling pretty freaked out, but I didn't want to show it. I thought it was a big dog, maybe, but the growls were like nothing I'd ever heard before. It sounded really big and almost demonic. Before I had any time to react, Shay screamed at the top of her lungs and dropped her flashlight in a panic, running back toward the house. We panicked and took off behind her. I didn't know what she saw, but I didn't want to wait around to find out. All of a sudden, I heard rustling and crunching as something big and fast was coming out of the woods followed by a horrendous, roaring growl. Pure terror struck me, and the adrenaline was coursing through my body. It leapt over the fence, hitting the ground hard and charging after us. I could hear the ground stomping under its feet as it kept coming. Shay was screaming ahead of us. I tried to turn back and see if Ty was keeping up, and I saw it, towering over the top of him. This enormous, black, furry creature was right there. 
I could see its black, furry mane and long, pointed ears sticking over its head like that of a wolf or dog. I couldn't believe the size of it. I know we were just kids, but Ty was a 14-year-old boy and he was pretty tall for his age. But this thing stood a good five foot something on all fours. I turned around, screaming for my life, trying to run faster, but I knew it was gaining on us. We were all screaming at this point, running across the field. I was hoping so desperately that someone would hear us and try to help, but we were so far out there it was almost impossible. The creature kept roaring that blood-curdling sound. It was like something from the pits of hell, easily the most terrifying thing I'd ever heard. I kept looking back in hopes that he was okay and to get a better look at this thing, but it never moved out from behind him. As soon as we made it through the gate, we slammed it shut and locked it as if that rusty, busted-up metal gate was going to do anything against that thing. We searched the area frantically as we gasped for air, but it was gone, not a trace of it. How could something so big, so loud, just disappear? It was possible it stopped and ran back into the woods without us knowing in our panicked mindset, but why? It could have easily killed us just like those cows. Either way, I thank God I was able to live and tell about it. We ran back to his grandma's trailer, trying to be quiet, but got caught by his brother. We told him what had happened, but he didn't believe us at all, just made jokes. His attitude changed real quick, though. The next night, we heard something outside the trailer. Their great-grandma called their grandma and said she heard someone or something messing around her house. So Ty's grandma grabbed her shotgun, and her and his brother went out to see what was going on. It wasn't long before they came back and he looked like he had seen a ghost. His face was pale, and he was real quiet. That was unlike him. His grandma demanded that we stay in at night, but nobody would tell us what had happened. We tried to get him to tell us, but he refused to talk about it. It frightened him so bad that it gave him nightmares for a while. All he said was, I believe you. We never went back into the woods after that, and when it got dark, we got in the house quickly especially during the full moon. That was the last time any of us saw it out there, and no one seems to know what it was. Everyone thought it was a bobcat, but I begged to differ. This thing was bigger than any bobcat I've ever seen, and we don't have bears or wolves around here. So, what was it? My second encounter was a bit different. I was 14 and we lived in a housing duplex, we were surrounded by apartments on all sides. Directly behind us was a big open field, spacing out the other apartments. Two on the left, two on the right, and three directly behind us. Facing the ones behind ours was a road, and right on the other side was a huge field with a little old abandoned building sitting in the middle. A few yards away in the field, to the left, was a house that owned part of the property, and way on the end, to the right, a few yards away from the building was the football practice area. 
Beyond the field, just past the building, was a pond that was surrounded by tall grass and cattails. A little further out, surrounding the entire area, was deep, dense woods that led on to the next town. One night I was out playing a hide-and-go-seek tag type of game with my neighbor friends. Everything was normal. We did this all the time. After everyone was caught, we went to the front of the apartments by my place and soon realized that one of our friends was still out there hiding. We yelled for him and told him the game was over, but nobody knew where he actually was. So we started looking for him and kept calling his name. We searched all over the front area for him, but nobody could find him, and he wasn't answering any of us, which we thought was really strange. I decided to go look for him in the field towards the woods, because that's where all the boys would hide when the grass grew high. It was the perfect hiding place, especially at night. I made my way to the road and was looking around. I soon got to the streetlight. Just at the edge of the field by the road, there are a set of trees. Not very big and not very many, maybe about seven in all, placed in a row and spaced out about 12 feet apart. In between a set of two trees, I saw a figure that appeared to be crouched in the tall grass. I knew it had to be him. I walked up to him and said, Hey, come on. The game is over. You won. Everyone's been looking for you. But he never replied. I stopped directly in front of him about eight or nine feet away and stood in the gravel in the road. The grass was really high that night. Walking into it, it would have come up to my waist or a little higher, so it was over his head while he was crouched and it was hard to really see him, but I knew he was there by the dark figure. I said his name a few times and asked him why he wasn't responding but he never said anything. I was starting to wonder if this was really him or not. I leaned forward a little bit, staring at the figure for a minute, and I started to realize that what I'd been talking to resembled an animal, more so a dog. So of course, I started talking to it again. Oh, hi baby, what are you doing? I said, thinking that I'm now talking to a pretty good sized dog just sitting in the tall grass. I talked to it a few more times, but it didn't move or make a sound. I looked around and was starting to feel a little creeped out. It was dark. I was alone, and I'd finally noticed how foggy the field was in the tall grass. Among all that, I also noticed I didn't hear my friends yelling anymore. I didn't like the atmosphere I was in and I was beginning to get a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. I looked back down at the dog, and I saw it start to stand up, but it didn't stand onto all fours like I expected it to. No, it kept rising. I slowly watched this thing stand straight up on two legs, and it went way over my head. It was hunched over, covered in thick black fur. Its arms were bent, and its paw-like hands were down in front of its waist area. Its legs were bent exactly like that of a dog, and it had a long, thick, black tail. It stood at least three or four feet taller than me, and I was around five foot one. 
It was strangely built, like a person, but it wasn't especially muscular, just really tall and really furry. I knew what I was staring at had to be the same thing that attacked me and my friends four years earlier. I was frightened. I didn't know what to do. I just stood there and stared at it. I couldn't quite make out its facial structure, but I knew it had a snout. It didn't make a sound and neither did I. I slowly started to take a step back and it mimicked me taking a step forward. I was horrified. I wanted to run, but I was afraid it would attack me right there and then. I slowly took a few more steps and watched it come a little closer. I finally got the courage to run and ran as fast as I could, almost falling into a ditch. I ran across the road, over the sidewalk, through someone's yard, and in between two apartments, leading into the open field. I saw my apartment and kept running until I was almost in my neighbor's yard before turning to look back. It wasn't following me, but I was too scared to stop and went around to the front where everyone else was at. I ran to the group of them and stopped in a panic, trying to catch my breath. They then asked me where I had been and that our friend was in his house the whole time. I was too shaken up to talk, and I was still out of breath. My girlfriends knew something was wrong. I calmed down a bit and finally told them what I saw, but the boys just laughed at me. I'm not kidding. I saw it, I yelled, getting mad. One of the boys laughed and said, It was probably just a big beaver. I couldn't believe it. Really? A beaver? Beavers don't stand eight feet tall, I continued. But they laughed and wanted to see what was out there. I was hesitant at first because I already knew how dangerous it was, if it was in fact the same thing I saw before. But they were determined to see it. We went out there, but it was already gone. I stayed alert in case it came back, but it never did. We looked around and some of the boys went further into the field, but it was too foggy and the grass was too high to see anything. I showed them where it was and saw that the grass where it had been crouching was disturbed. It was obvious something was here, but they continued to make their jokes. The next day... I wanted to go out there and look for any evidence that may have been there that we didn't see, but I had to babysit, so my girlfriends went instead. I don't know if it was true or not, but they swore they found huge dog-like footprints out by the woods. They found them in the mud by the pond and followed them until they stopped at a tree. When they took me to see it, the people who owned the property came out and threatened us, telling us to leave. I never saw anything else like that out there again, but I did notice strange sounds at night out in the woods. Every so often, me and some other people would hear weird howls that almost sounded like a person screaming, but howling at the same time too. It wasn't like any type of howls I've ever heard, but everyone brushed them off as coyotes crying. I don't believe that for a second. 
I don't know what they were, but the best way I can describe them was they were, well, werewolves. As crazy as that sounds, I can't think of anything else they could have been. I haven't seen anything since that day, or heard any of those strange sounds since I moved out of the apartment, but I know they're still out there, somewhere, watching. This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the US. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry while Steve, separately, researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On my way home from Jake L. I live in a city with my mom and my younger brother. We own four shops in my village, which has now basically started to develop into a small town. The city in which I live is 25 miles away from it, my father often visits us every two or three days, as it can be difficult to commute daily. We have a huge bungalow in the village where my uncle, aunt, and grandparents live with my father. My mom, along with my younger brother, settled in the town 15 years ago from our village for my education. So whenever we have festivals or celebrations, we have to travel back to our village a few days prior to the event. Well, I was in my village one night. It was late, around 10.30pm. I had to drop my other cousin off at his house, which was about 5 miles away from ours. So I took my scooter instead of my sports bike, since it was much more comfortable to drive, after my stomach was full from a great feast we had. There were two roads for us to take to reach his house. One was the normal street where vehicles drive very often, 
while the other was a shortcut, but it was pebbled and not maintained well. There were often some strange and paranormal sightings on this road, according to the local villagers, and the forest surrounding it really gave off a spooky vibe. Since my cousin and I had a great interest in ghost stories and legends, we decided to go down this shortcut road. It was a full moon night, so the only lights on the road were my headlights and the moonlight. We started telling some scary stories to each other, settling into the eerie atmosphere. We soon made it to his house. My uncle and aunt were asking me to spend the night, as it was already late, but I'd have to be in the city early in the morning, so I couldn't stay. As I left their house, I asked them not to worry too much, since I would call them as soon as I made it home. I began to make my way back. I decided to use the same pebbled road. As soon as I began to drive down the road, a chill went through my spine, which startled me. It was like my instincts were telling me to turn back. I shook off the feeling, then I put in my headphones, playing music from my phone. It soon began to sink in despite the headphones, that I was alone, and the surrounding forest was creepy. When I would turn and have to have my back turned towards it, it felt as if something was about to tackle me from behind. I ignored this sensation as best I could, and drove another two miles. Suddenly, I spotted a woman walking on the side of the road. She looked completely normal, and as the village was just a mile ahead, I thought she would be bothered by me offering her a lift, so I drove further ahead of her. After driving further, I saw the same woman walking ahead of me, which made me anxious. I thought to myself, how could someone walk or run so fast without me seeing them pass me by, even though she had been right behind me on the same road? I began to panic a bit, so I sped up. Now here is where it gets really creepy. I don't know why I looked in the rear mirror of my scooter, but when I did, I'll never forget what I saw. It was the same woman, except now she was running after me. I was terrified, so I began to accelerate even more, and yet she was still gaining on me. The faster I went, the more she gained. What scared me the most was when she was chasing me, her hands were stretched forward and her nails looked horrifically sharp. For a moment, as I stared at her through the mirror, the shadows of the nearby trees broke and the moonlight revealed more of her. That feeling of fear and helplessness grew. She had extremely pale skin, eyes pure white, and just a black spot in the pupils. Her teeth were extremely sharp, like some sort of predator instead of a human, and her mouth was wide open, more than humanly possible. She wore a pure black dress, just looking at her chasing after me like that. My eyes went teary from the sight. I was glancing a few times in the mirror when I then saw her get down on her hands, now running on legs and hands like an animal chasing prey. At that moment, I thought I was going to die, but still with all the adrenaline pumping inside me, 
I drove to the max speed my scooter would allow. I stopped looking back, trying to focus on driving and getting away. After a few minutes, I don't know how, but when I finally did look back again, she was gone. When I exited that road and reached my village, I slowed down and stopped near a police station, which was just at the start of the village. Seeing me with such desperation and a frightened look, the officer patrolling at the time asked me what happened. I wanted to speak so badly, I wanted to tell him how happy I was to see him, but not a single word came out. Instead of speaking, I looked back one last time to make sure the woman was really gone. But my jaw dropped at what I saw. I shivered, my eyes wide open. That woman was standing right there at the start of the road, as if she was unable to cross it. She gave me a smile. A smile so wicked, as if she was telling me she had fun chasing me that night, that she was glad I was there to entertain her for the night. Slowly, she backed and faded away into the dark forest. The officer asked me again and again, but still, not a single word came out. The officer took me home. When I made it home, I felt a warm and cozy feeling come over me, and finally tears began to roll down my eyes. I was so glad and felt so fortunate to be alive, to be home. When my family saw me in such a state, instead of asking about the situation, they just sat me down on the couch. Eventually, I calmed down a bit, and I explained the situation, which I cannot believe or didn't even know how to comprehend. To my surprise, they all believed me and were much relieved knowing that I wasn't harmed. My grandparents then told me that there were a few recent cases in the village about people seeing a woman on that road, chasing down whoever walked or drove on it, but never actually harmed anyone. The next day, I came back here in the city. It's been two days since the incident as of writing this. I still feel so lucky, and I can't help but wonder what would have happened to me if the woman had caught me, or if my scooter had broken down. I know one thing, I'm safe now, but I won't be able to visit my village anymore, at least not for a certain time. Artillery versus Mythology from 19 Delta Scout My mother had arranged for one of my cousins to pick me up from the International Airport in Manila during my last visit to the Philippines. Being Filipino myself, it seemed like every time I returned to visit my parents' native country, I am introduced to hundreds more cousins and relatives, which I never knew I had. I had never met this cousin, whom I'll call Juan, who came to pick me up on a warm, tropical evening. It was near midnight, but Manila was still alive with the lights and sounds and hustle and bustle of a crowded metro city. My cousin Juan, a slender young man sporting a military-style haircut, picked me up in an older model van, and after tossing my baggage in the back, we began the long and slow trip out of the city. I was on block leave from the army, 
having just returned from a deployment to the Middle East, and I came to the Philippines to relax and to get away from all things United States military. As we made our way slowly through the congested midnight streets, still filled with shoppers, vendors, tourists, and partygoers, my cousin asked me what I do in the US Army. We had a good five-hour drive to where I would be vacationing near the beaches. I told him that I served as a platoon sergeant and an artillery unit. I'm also known as the Chief of Smoke, or simply Smoke. My cousin Juan got very excited to hear this. As it turns out, he was also an artillery crew member in the Philippine Army, and he anxiously invited me to visit his artillery unit before my vacation was over. Naturally, I accepted the invitation, as I was anxious to see my fellow Filipino 13 Bravos, that is, the U.S. Army designation of an artillery soldier, an action. Yeah, I came to the Philippines to get away from things that go boom really loudly, but I couldn't pass this up. Towards the end of my vacation, my cousin Juan again picked me up, all dressed and looking tactic-cool in his Philippine Army battle dress uniform, and took me to the base. I was very excited to see how the Filipino artillery units operated, compared to the way we operated in an American artillery unit. For one, I noticed that the Filipino battle dress uniform was pretty modern, resembling our own American uniforms with a similar digitized camouflage pattern, much like the ones our US Marines wear. Their equipment loadout was also basically the same as ours, with modular load-bearing vests for ammunition pouches, grenades, first aid kits, and water, while their individual weapons ranged from 5.56 caliber M16s and M4 rifles, with the designated sharpshooters armed with the 7.62 caliber M14 rifles. All in all, I judge the individual Filipino artillery soldier to be just as motivated, competent, and professional as the best soldiers that served in my unit. My only disappointment was with the old equipment that the Filipino artillerymen were using. Their main artillery gun was the old American M101 105mm towed howitzer. Long retired from service with the United States military, the M101 first saw service in 1941 and was now considered a museum piece by most of the Allied countries which used them. But the M101 howitzer still soldiered on with the Philippine military. And in fact, the artillery piece which many of these young soldiers operated were the same artillery pieces which their fathers operated, or even their grandfathers before them. In addition, their methods of emplacement and laying the gun battery, or setting up the firing unit, then positioning the gun tubes to fire on the enemy, hadn't changed much since the 1960s. On average, it took 15 to 20 minutes to get the unit into position, set up artillery shells, and fire at the enemy. By contrast, the modern United States military using sophisticated GPS, satellite, and target acquisition systems could set up, acquire the enemy target, fire and destroy the enemy, and leave the firing position in a fraction of the time. I was issued a Philippine military vest with body armor and a Kevlar helmet, and I accompanied the unit to the field, where they set up to fire a battery of four howitzers. Given the fact that they were issued ancient equipment and were using outdated fire procedures, the unit still performed admirably with what they had and were able to put steel on target as quickly and as accurately as was possible. 
The unit commander was an air assault qualified officer, we'll call him Captain C, who was justifiably pleased with his firing battery. From emplacement to rounds impacting on target, the unit averaged only 10 minutes. This was a remarkable feat, given the equipment they had to work with. Later in the day, we returned from the field to the main base, where the unit cooks served the soldiers a meal of a curry made with goat, a soup made with noodles and a type of Vienna sausage, and a generous portion of rice. After lunch, the soldiers began the task of cleaning and doing maintenance on their howitzers. I took that time to walk around the huge concrete bay where the unit held their formations, and admired the many pictures, banners, and citations that the unit earned which decorated the walls. One picture in particular caught my eye, and I had to do a double take to ensure what I was seeing was real. The picture was taken inside that very bay, with six soldiers standing side by side in front of a wall. The soldier in the middle I recognized as being Captain C, although at the time the picture was taken, he was a lieutenant. My cousin Juan was standing to the far right. What was shocking was that mounted on the wall above the six soldiers was a giant wing. The wing was colored dark gray, almost black, and seemed to be covered in a coarse fur. The wing was withered and resembled that of a bat, only it extended beyond the six soldiers standing underneath it. Assuming that each of the soldiers took up two feet of a standing space, I would estimate that the bat-looking wing in the picture measured about 14 feet long. Not wanting to take any soldier away from their duties, I waited until later in the evening when the unit's first sergeant, Gompalas, and several other sergeants invited me and my cousin out for dinner and drinks at the base in CO Club. Over a plate of grilled steak kebabs and a nice bourbon on the rocks, I asked First Sergeant Gumpalas about the curious picture that I saw in the bay. To my surprise, they talked about how they acquired the wing as nonchalantly as one might describe their morning commute to work. This was the story that was related to me that night. Back when Captain C was a lieutenant, the unit went out for about a week of training in one of the more remote islands in the southern part of the Philippines, where suspected insurgent fighters were said to be operating. It was a heavily forested area with several mountains and hills where almost anything could hide. The unit made a base camp in a clearing about two miles from the nearest village, and began conducting artillery training, firing rounds into an uninhabited impact area, which had previously been cut out of the dense jungle. On the fourth day of training, the village leader and several farmers came to the base camp and demanded to see Lieutenant C. The village leader accused C that his men had stolen several chickens and a goat from the village the night before and demanded repayment. Immediately, Lieutenant C formed his unit and a thorough inspection was conducted. The unit first sergeant said that no soldier left the perimeter last night and no evidence was found of the missing chickens and the goat. Despite this, Lieutenant C gave the villagers as much rice and canned goods as they could carry, as he did not want any troubles with the local population, who could have been sympathetic to the rebel insurgents. However, late the next day, 
The village leader returned and again accused the soldiers of stealing. This time, more goats and chickens were missing, with many chicken coops smashed. Lieutenant C again protested the innocence of his soldiers, assuming that the village leader was just using that as an excuse to get more free food from the soldiers. However, Lieutenant C agreed to send First Sergeant Gompales and five other soldiers, including my cousin Juan, to the village to investigate. The six soldiers, along with the village leader, were loaded onto two military trucks and driven back to the village. Once there, the soldiers could feel a tension in the air, and the village of roughly 200 inhabitants was clearly on edge. The first sergeant radioed back to Lieutenant C at the base camp that indeed many chicken coops were smashed, and the pin which held the goats was also destroyed. Lieutenant C radioed back, telling first sergeant Gompalas that the perpetrators may be rebel insurgents and that they may be trying to make the villagers hateful of the soldiers. The captain warned the soldiers to be careful and watch for any signs of insurgent movement, when all of a sudden, a scream echoed throughout the village that alerted the soldiers. A young woman crying hysterically ran from a small home and into the arms of the village leader. It took a few moments to calm the young woman down as she screamed and pointed back at her house made of bamboo and thatch. In the native language, she cried over and over again saying, she's gone, she's gone, it took her. The young woman turned out to be the village leader's daughter and the person missing was her newborn little girl. The Filipino soldiers raced to the rear of the hut to find a huge hole torn into the back of the thatch wall where the baby was apparently sleeping. On the ground, the soldiers found evidence of claw marks. Whatever had done this had done it only a few minutes before the soldiers arrived. First Sergeant Gompales radioed back to the captain, explaining the situation as well as his intention to look for the baby. Lieutenant C, cautious that it may be a trap, to lure the soldiers into the forest, told them to stay put until more soldiers could arrive. However, Juan had heard the sounds of a crying baby somewhere in the distance, seeming to come from deep in the forest. It was getting darker by that time, with only about an hour of daylight left. First Sergeant Gompales again radioed the lieutenant, pleading with him to allow them to search for the infant before it got too dark. This time, Lieutenant C agreed, but ordered them to remain in constant contact with the base. The soldiers plunged into the forest, trying to follow the fading sounds of the infant. Since this was only a training mission, the soldiers were armed with only one magazine for their rifles, containing just five rounds. The faint sound of a crying baby was combined with the sound of giant wings flapping, which at times seemed to go silent as if whatever was flying had settled in the trees. To their northeast were steep hills shrouded in dense vegetation, and to the west was a wide river which flowed from north to south. For a moment, the flapping noise and the rustle of tree branches seemed to be coming from the soldiers east, meaning that whatever it was, was now heading towards the hills. The soldiers had already been running through thick and humid jungle for about a mile scanning the treetops and listening for noise. But after a while, the flapping noises ceased and the jungle became quiet again. 
The soldiers stopped in the thick jungle, forming a perimeter, and listened. They were at the base of the hills. Three quarters of a mile to the west was the river. The soldiers were sweating and tired, having had to maneuver around the vegetation and fallen trees in their desperation to find the infant. Once again, it was Juan who heard the crying. Somewhere on the steep hill above them was the faint sound of a crying baby. As the sun crept lower and lower over the horizon, the soldiers began ascending the hill, grabbing roots, vines, and branches as they pulled themselves ever upwards. Though completely exhausted, the further up they climbed, the louder the cries of the baby. They finally came to a somewhat level ground where the baby could be heard only a few dozen meters away, though they could not see her due to the incredibly thick vegetation. Suddenly, they were met with a sound like rushing water and a monstrous something with hideous black wings breaking through the dense foliage. Juan got the best glimpse of the thing, describing it as standing roughly five feet tall, with the face which looked to be a combination of an old hag and a bat. It was covered in dark fur. This was the only good look that the soldiers got of the entity as the rest of them only saw a dark shadow as it passed overhead. Climbing over a small rise, the soldiers emerged into a small clearing to a shallow cave. Around the cave, were the carcasses of half-eaten raw chickens and goats. Also within the cave, in what can only be described as a nest of straw, scrap cloth, and dead foliage, lay a little baby girl. Her thin clothing was ripped, and she had suffered several scratches and appeared too tired to even cry anymore. First Sergeant Gumpales immediately scooped up the baby girl in his arms, comforting the baby as she coughed and whimpered. All of a sudden, shots were fired as the soldiers began firing down the hillside. First Sergeant Gumpales rushed over to see what his soldiers were shooting at. The thing was now gliding downwards, away from the hill, and towards the river. If it gets across the river, we won't be able to track it again, yelled Juan. The thing sat down on the top of a thin strand of trees less than a mile away, apparently injured by the shots fired from the soldiers. First Sergeant Gumpales handed the baby over to Juan, then grabbed the radio from one of the other soldiers. Fire mission, fire mission, fire mission! He yelled back to the artillery base. One round, shell, high explosive, fuse, airburst. At this point, Lieutenant C could have questioned First Sergeant Gumpales as to why they were firing outside of the designated impact area. He could have also questioned why they were firing an airburst, an artillery round timed to explode in the air. But he did neither, trusting in the judgment of his combat-experienced First Sergeant, and ordered his unit to execute the fire mission. Shot out, yelled Lieutenant C into the radio as one M101 howitzer belched smoke and fire. Meanwhile, the thing was half walking, half crawling towards the deeper woods, flapping its wings again as if to fly. The soldiers up at the cave held their breath as the creature disappeared into the woods, followed by an explosion in the trees 50 feet above where the thing vanished under the vegetation, just as the last fading rays of sunlight dipped below the horizon. A dark shape emerged from under the smoke. A scream eerily human-sounding came from it. 
The black shape attempted to flap its wings as it attempted to cross the river. Instead, all that could be heard was a loud splash. As soon as the soldiers returned to the village, they quickly brought the baby girl back to the base camp, along with the village leader and the greatly relieved mother. The medics examined the baby girl, cleaning and bandaging her wounds. Despite being a bit dehydrated and scratched and bruised, the baby girl would make a full recovery. Lieutenant C filed a report with the battalion command and assigned a squad of soldiers to watch over the village for a few days, but nothing more unusual occurred. Over the course of the training period, soldiers returned to the village to help repair the damage to the chicken coops and the pins which held the goats. They also repaired the home of the little baby girl, whom the soldiers nicknamed Lucky Star. The display of artillery gunnery of 1st Sergeant Gumpales was nothing short of spectacular, as hitting a moving target with just one round was amazing. Three days later, fishermen fishing the river found the wing washed up on the shore and brought it to the soldiers. The soldiers eventually brought the wing back to base and mounted it on the wall. But the thing began to shrivel up and stink as it was exposed to constant daylight. So a day and a half later, the soldiers took it down and burned it, and that was that. Still, the nonchalant way they described the incident fascinated me, as if this was just one aspect of life being a soldier in that part of the world. For their part, the Filipino soldiers were just as fascinated by my apparently nonchalant description of being surrounded by thousands of terrorist insurgents when I was on an isolated base in Iraq only a few months earlier. We Americans faced ISIS fighters, but these Filipino soldiers faced big, creepy, bat-woman monsters. No big deal either way when you got artillery on your side. The Ghost in Me House from Alphanator1234YT This story is a short one. I mean, really short. Basically, I used to live in a small village in Roscommon, in Ireland. The village was called Scramogue. My mom and my sister went to Longford to do the weekly shopping. They would sometimes make me come with them. However, that day they allowed me to stay home. My mom said she would be gone for about three hours, which for her meant six. About half an hour into my stay at home alone, I began feeling uneasy. I have some mild paranoia, so this wouldn't mean much. When I say mild, I mean that if I heard a sound, I would stop what I was doing and look around for about two seconds. Then I would resume whatever I was doing. Anyway, I was sitting in my bed, feeling a bit uneasy. Then the blinds in the bathroom beside my room began shaking. This spooked me a lot. I shouted something along the lines of, who's there? When no one responded, I called myself an idiot, which basically means idiot. The window was open. Of course it was. So I got up to go close it. The reason I wanted the window closed was because wasps seemed to love flying into rooms that I'm in. And I hate wasps. I went into the room, but the window was closed, so the blinds shaking was not caused by the wind. This idea scared me. 
so I just hoped that the rattling sound came from the video I was watching. About an hour passed without much incident. Then I heard something else. I heard footsteps coming from upstairs. Then there was a knock at the door. I practically jumped at the door. Luckily, it was just some friends coming by to see if I wanted to come outside with them. I threw on my shoes and I ran out the door. I've not experienced many more incidents since then, or before then, for that matter. Now, some people hearing this story might just say that the footsteps were also my friend's footsteps. But I was on the first floor, which is the second to Americans. The door was on the ground floor, and the footsteps were in the attic. Definitely not the sound of my friends coming to the door. Plus, the footsteps sounded like they were hitting wood, not tarmac. For a while, I tried to convince myself that it was just my friends, too. But that doesn't make sense to what I heard. Thanks for listening. The following story was posted anonymously on 4chan on April 22nd, 2013. The Fallen Tree by Anon. I've only shared this one with a few people, and still when I think about it, it freaks me out. I was 16 or so, and growing up in a small town, exploring out in the hills was the thing to do. This incident took place at the north end of Ruby Valley in Elko County, Nevada. It's slightly north of the road off of Highway 93 that goes into Ruby Valley. I always liked checking out old mine shafts and ghost towns, and that crap really intrigues me. At the Burger Bar in Wells, Nevada, where I'm from and grew up, they had these old turn-of-the-century maps under glass on the tables. On one of them, it showed several ghost towns just north of Ruby Valley, so I figured I'd go check them out, as I had not been in the area very often. I gassed up my 72 Dodge W200 pickup, and being a redneck and gun enthusiast, I grabbed my HK91 and set out. I'd found some old foundations in the lower country, and I started heading into the mountains themselves. I began finding abandoned mine shafts, it was pretty cool, so I kept going up. I took this ancient road that was no more than an overgrown cattle path by this point in history, and I soon came upon a tree. It was blocking the road. It was an old pinion pine about two feet in diameter that blocked the road. After the tree road, I continued straight for about 200 yards, then hooked right before coming back 180 degrees. I parked my truck in front of a tree and set out on foot. I grabbed my HK-91 with one 20-round magazine in the rifle and put one 20-round mag in my back left pocket. I always had a rifle with me as I have encountered mountain lions and mine shafts before, and because generally I like to shoot stuff. I got up on the ridge lines and shoot boulders from a couple hundred yards away. As soon as I climbed up over a fallen tree, I had a freaking creepy feeling. It was like I was being watched. I continued on for about 200 yards, to the point where the road began curving right and gaining elevation, going towards the cabin. At this point, I had the realization that not only did I feel like I was being watched, it was also dead quiet outside. This was in June or so, as school had just gotten out. 
Everywhere you went, you would hear those freaking cicadas, but not here. It seemed as soon as I crossed that fallen tree, the mountains were silent. No bugs, no birds, nothing. Deafening silence. As I came up to the turn, there was this big freaking rock. The thing had to be about 15 feet in diameter. You could tell that it used to be on the road, but due to years of erosion, snow, and all that, it had slid down just slightly off the road. It seemed to be red limestone or something like that. It stood out since they're not that common in the area. I looked at the rock, and I could tell there were carvings in it at some point in time. Due to weathering, though, whatever was carved in it had been worn off. I kept walking up the road, being creeped out like crazy, but I really wanted to check out the old cabin, as it was pretty obvious no one had been there in quite a while. At this point, I was probably three hours off the road. I got up to this cabin, and as far as abandoned houses and cabins in Nevada go, this one was in pretty good shape. All the glass in the windows was intact, and there were remnants of curtains behind the windows. By then, there was something in the back of my mind telling me that I should be going, but I went in the cabin, and that's when I began to get the feeling that something was wrong. Most cabins you find out in the middle of nowhere in Nevada are barren. Nothing really left maybe a bit of broken furniture. This one was completely furnished. Time had taken its toll, of course, but everything was still there. What was left of an old mattress and bedding? Plates and other cookware throughout the house. Tattered clothing and personal effects, such as a chest, faded pictures, and the like. What really creeped me out was the dinner table. It was set for four people. Dinner plate, glasses, silverware... This was the first cabin I'd ever found that was in this condition. It was like whoever resided here just up and left in a hurry, leaving everything behind. I felt like I should not be in the cabin. I went outside to see if I could find the mineshaft or anything else. Once I was out the door, I decided to chamber around on my HK-91. The sound of me racking around echoed throughout the canyon and broke the silence. As little of a thing as it was, this calmed my nerves very slightly. Directly behind me was a well. It was still intact, and as I got closer, it sounded like there was noise coming from it, like a slight breeze rustling through it. When I was within about 30 feet of it, I started to smell something. It was absolutely putrid. Something had definitely died in that well. The smell of decay was heavy in the air with an acrid copper scent that tore at my nostrils. I didn't want to get any closer to the well. I started walking towards the left, where I could see the opening to a mine shaft up on the hill. The closer I got to it, I started feeling a breeze coming out of it. This isn't really uncommon if you've explored mine shafts before, as the breeze could be coming in from another opening from the mine. But the thing was, it was perfectly calm. As far as I could see, there were no trees moving or any signs of wind. As I got closer, another thing that struck me as odd was the breeze coming out of the shaft. It was hot. Usually, it was cool, as most mine shafts maintain a constant temperature. The closer I got to the shaft, the slower I moved towards it. Nothing since I crossed that fallen tree seemed right. 
The closer I got to the opening of the mineshaft, the more of a feeling of dread and being watched I got. I was within about 15 feet of the shaft when the freaking smell hit me. That smell of decay and copper, but much stronger than what I smelled from the well. Right then, all of my spidey senses started going off. I had to get out of there. I began turning left to book it out of there when I saw a dark shadow moving in the opening of the mineshaft. Whatever it was, it appeared to be crouched down to fit in the mineshaft. Most mineshafts I've been in have 8 to 10 foot ceilings. At first, I thought it was a mountain lion. Then I truly remembered how big the shafts were. My mind raced, trying to figure out what the heck it was. It was too big to be a black bear, which are rare in Nevada. I nearly froze with panic, and it slowly kept coming towards the opening of the mineshaft. It was probably within 10 feet of the opening, and the light was beginning to show what it was. It was covered from head to toe in grayish-brown fur. This thing suddenly freaking screamed. It was unlike anything I've ever heard in my life. My ears were ringing from it. I flipped into panic mode and did what any good redneck would do. I shot it. I pulled up my HK-91, placed the front blade on what appeared to be its center mass, and ripped off five rounds as fast as I could accurately shoot. If you've ever shot big game with a large caliber rifle, you know the sound when you connect with something. I heard four solid thunks and one round that went high. This made it scream even louder than it had, in pain. At this time, I started hearing more and separate screams coming from over in the well and in the hills above the mine shaft. I started running down the hill as fast as I could, in the tree line above the road, approximately 75 to 125 yards. I could see fast movement. Rocks were tumbling down the hill and there were several other screams. From the mine shaft, I could hear the wailing of whatever the heck I'd shot, and whatever it was, my shots had definitely connected. It was hurting. It was up in the tree line. They were running from tree to tree on all fours, getting closer to me. As I ran towards the rock, I was shooting in the general vicinity of the movement on top of the hill. By the time I got to the limestone rock, I had expended the 20-round mag in the rifle. I ripped it out and put in my spare magazine, chambered around, and started sprinting towards the fallen tree, approximately 200 yards away by now. I kept glancing back, and whatever they were, they were staying in the trees. I could make out their masses and fur, but they would not stay in the open. I got back to the fallen tree, and I ate crap trying to jump over it. I got up off my rear, fired between 12 to 15 rounds the closest movement, which was now about 50 yards away. I heard a few rounds connect, and those things began to scream louder. Between the screaming and gunshots, my ears were damn near dead. I opened the door of my truck and got the heck in, starting it up as fast as I could. I backed up to turn around, and I darned near put my truck down in the canyon. As I began going forward to leave on the road I came in on, I finally got a good look at one of them. It was crouched over with its front feet on the tree, covered from head to toe in grayish-brown fur with long, slender fingers and claws tipping off those fingers. The back of it was hunched, and the face was slender, most closely resembling that of a badger, but with sunken-in eyes. It was shaking its head back and forth, 
and it sounded like it was attempting to speak, but it was so garbled, and with the noise of my truck I could not make out what it was. I averaged about 50 to 60 miles per hour on a crappy dirt road that I'd done 15 on on the way in. I did not slow down or stop until I got back to pavement. By then I was so shaken I had to stop and collect myself. I got back to town and I was in a bit of shock. My dad had been a guide in the Ruby Mountains for about 20 years. He asked me how my trip went and where I went. He could tell that I was startled and asked where I'd been. I told him that I'd been north of Ruby Valley, he got quiet, and asked if I'd seen a cabin with a fallen tree over the road. I told him yes. He looked me in the eyes and told me that is somewhere I should never go again, especially alone. We never spoke about it again after that. I've never been back there. Part of the reason is I live in western Nevada now. But in the back of my mind, there is something that is telling me I should go back. And one day I do want to go back. This was in 2001, before camera phones, and I was too broke to afford a digital camera. I want to go back with a camera, preferably a GoPro on my helmet, and with several friends that are armed. Just something about there, even with the crap I experienced. It's drawing me back. One day I will go back. I guess I need closure for what happened that day. After a few years passed, I tried researching it. I asked some old-timers. One of them told a story about the rubies. During the 40s and 50s, the Army Air Corps operated out of the Wendover Air Base. Every now and then, during crap weather, a B-25, B-17, or B-29 would smack the rubies due to poor visibility. Some of the local ranchers got recruited to help the military go up to a crash site during the winter to recover the bodies. The rancher I was talking to told me that it took them three days to get to where the crash was on horseback and finally recover the bodies. He said when they got to the wreckage, all crew members were laid out side by side next to each other in a clearing in the wreckage. Many of them had severed limbs and it was apparent all died on impact. Somehow, they ended up laid out next to each other. This was at nearly 10,000 feet in elevation, too. The Cabin on the Lake From Judy A. This happened back in August in 2001. I was 14 years old and about to start high school when Dad took me and my older sister let's call her Ruth, fishing in Canada. My dad was in the New York textile trade and had a business contact in Montreal. They planned to bond over fishing in northern Quebec. The Canadian friend was taking his teenage son, so dad was taking his two middle daughters, me and Ruth. We were really close and were generally called the partners in crime by our parents from how often we got into trouble so mom thought us being in the wilderness would be harmless. Our destination was a two-day drive from New York City. We drove to Montreal on the first day, and the next morning we met up with Dad's business buddy, then drove north. I mean, way north, too. It was lovely to look at, but it was the part of Quebec where speaking English was rare. 
Ruth had two years of high school French, and I had some junior high stuff. Dad was fluent, and the waitress at the place where we stopped for lunch was tolerant of our mistakes, because we were trying our best to get it right. A couple of hours after stopping for lunch, we left the main highways and were soon on the road, where it seemed to be just us and our two SUVs and trucks from local loggers. Ruth and I thought it was cool to see these big trucks roll past with huge tree trunks on them. I mean, we were two girls from the suburbs, and people really did that. Ruth and I joked about finding cute lumberjacks. We were still giggling about that when we pulled into the place that handled the fishing. Dad bought some fishing licenses, and we loaded everything including food into the company's boat and headed down to the river. It was really picturesque. I mean, deep forests, mountains in the distance, the clear lake, and no sound except for the motor of the boat. We passed a few cabins on the shore. Each had a little dock and a few rowboats tied up to them. A few had smoke coming from their chimneys. We kept on going south, deeper across the lake. Dad had told us we were going to a cabin on a lake. What he didn't tell us was that it was a cabin on a lake. Like it was on an island in the middle of the lake, and the only way to reach it was by boat. The island was flat and barely large enough for the cabin, a woodpile, and the dock with a couple of rowboats on it. The closest land was a couple of hundred feet off. Cute lumberjacks? We weren't even going to get close to a squirrel. The boat pulled up to the small wooden dock on the island, and we offloaded the supplies. To be fair, the cabin was pretty nice. Bunk beds and a wood stove. We settled in and started work on dinner, tinned stew. We tried to get to know the son of Dad's contact. He was 15 years old and kind of an awkward nerd. We all walked around on the shore of the island and tried to be friendly, but behind his back, Ruth and I kept rolling our eyes. The things we did for Dad, we thought. We went to bed early. There wasn't any TV or anything, so why not? And we needed to get up early after all. So we were in bed at a time that in New York would have us complaining. There was still lots of giggling between us until Dad complained and Ruth said, this is why boys don't have slumber parties, which caused more laughing. We got up before dawn and had breakfast. Bacon, toast, and coffee. I hate eggs. And even with the morning chill, the lake looked wonderful in the gray light, with mist rolling over the surface. We headed out into the lake in two rowboats, and I discovered I really hate fishing. The dads were getting on great, which was the point of the trip, and the Canadian guy kept trying to talk to Ruth, ignoring the fact we'd both told him we both had boyfriends back home. Me? I tried to catch a fish and prayed to God Dad wouldn't want to teach me how to gut it if I did catch one. For the record, I did catch a fish. I caught one fish during the whole time we were there. And it was the largest any of us caught. It was a big pike. Everyone else caught a couple of fish, enough for a few meals, and we headed back to the island cabin for lunch. I had no interest in going back on the lake in the afternoon, and told Dad I'd look after the cabin, keep the fire going, and prep dinner. 
I guess Dad knew I had given it a good try, and if I was willing to stay behind, that would be enough. Ruth looked at me pleadingly, since she'd be alone in the rowboat with that guy. But I wasn't going to back out, just to float out there. Everyone else went back to torture fish, and I straightened up the cabin, fed the fire, and went outside. It was so peaceful. There was no sound. And that's when things got weird. I was gazing at the shore and realized there was no noise. No birdsong, no nothing. The undergrowth out there was so dense I don't think you could get through it. I was looking upon land that I didn't think any white man had ever tread on. But there was something there. Tall and humanoid. In the shadows, looking at me. I couldn't get a good look, and I'd almost convinced myself it was my imagination running wild. When the figure moved. It wasn't much, but it was enough to let me know that I'd seen it move. It was tall, and the head seemed like a deer. But do you get deer that stand six or seven feet tall at the shoulder? Then it moved again, and I realized it was on two legs not four, and it was staring back at me. I was extremely glad there was a lake between us. This thing gave off a feeling of hostility. I wanted to run back and barricade myself in the cabin until Dad came back, but I stood my ground. Once again, I reminded myself there was a whole lake between us. Then soon it was gone, fading back into the woods. I backed to the cabin, and once inside, I bolted the door. I grabbed a paperback book in my bag to read, to distract myself, to not think about what I saw. I ended up losing myself in the book until Dad banged on the door and wanted to know why it was locked. I didn't want to tell him. I didn't want him to think I was a baby. So I said the wind kept blowing it open and I was sick of closing it. He seemed to accept that. They brought in their catches, and we were having fish for dinner. The men folk went to clean them. I took that chance to tell Ruth. She was my best friend, and I needed to tell someone. Unfortunately, she was still teed off at me, having to spend the afternoon on the lake with the geek guy, and she teased me, saying I was just hallucinating. I was hurt by this, and luckily she backed off, but we were both in a bad mood as evening set in. Dinner was really good. I mean, fresh fish out of the lake, it was delicious. As everyone was settling in and the dads were playing chess, I went out to look at the stars overhead. They were amazing. No light pollution at all. I looked out over the lake. There was nothing there to spoil the peace. Then I looked at the shore, the place I'd looked before, and it was completely dark. But somehow, I knew it was there, looking at me. Whatever sense I had evaporated. I just knew there was something there, and that it hated us, hated me, hated people. Whatever I was to it, I felt like the embodiment of what it hated. 
I didn't think I'd been there that long, but suddenly there was a hand on my forearm, and I let out a little scream of surprise. It was Ruth, saying that I'd been out there for a couple of hours, and everyone was going to bed. Two hours? No way. It was just a few minutes, right? There was no giggling that night, but Ruth sort of accepted there was something bugging me, even if she didn't see it. The next morning, everyone else went fishing again. Dad just took it for granted that I would stay behind. But Ruth made a real effort to get me in the boat. However, I didn't want to go. I should have. I found myself staring at the shore again. Was it there? How deep was the water? Could it swim out to me? Then I realized I was thinking, could I swim over there? The idea of trying that took hold and started to grow, becoming a near obsession. I could do it. I really could. I was standing there when the others came back from the morning on the lake. By now, Ruth was really worried about me, and when I asked about swimming, Dad looked at me like I was nuts, saying it was far too cold to be doing that. We would be leaving that afternoon, and I kept standing, staring at the dense woods, where no white man or woman had set foot, and wondered what could happen if I was the first. I was really glad when we got back on the boat to go back to the cars. Less than a month later, I was in high school, and 9-11 happened. The world changed around me. Since then, I've been in lots of woods, and I even became involved with my church's youth league, but I've never been in woods as primal as the ones in Canada. I wonder what would happen if I ever find them again. The Beast in the Woods From Reet Yeet One I've lived in the woods for a while now, and it's been nice. As beautiful as it was, I've now run into something not as nice. It began as something here or there, Something would vanish mysteriously, and I would not end up finding it. But then it started to get a little worse. You see, I have this chicken coop, because I thought it would be fun to raise some chickens and get some eggs out of the whole ordeal. But about three to four months ago, they would start to go missing. Well, I hate to say it, but I think I finally found what has been taking them. Throw back to about three weeks ago. I was shutting my place down one night, around 1.30 to 2 a.m. I was just locking up the place when the automatic lights near my shed went on. I thought to myself that this is weird, but it was probably just a wild animal snooping around. At this point, I had reinforced the chicken coop, so at this moment I wasn't too scared, and I just wanted to see what was snooping around my house. I peeked out the window, and saw something similar to a wolf, but something about it was just really wrong. I couldn't yet tell what was wrong with it, but all I knew was that I didn't like it. I watched helplessly as it got into the coop, 
which I just thought was impenetrable for anything other than a human. After it made its way into the coop, I stood there, dumbfounded at what I saw. A moment later, the thing exited the coop. I couldn't believe my eyes. The creature was standing on its hind legs. I was a heck of a lot more confused by this when, bless his heart, my dog let out a snarl at the creature. Before I could react, the beast was looking at us. My dog instantly stopped and slunk down. I followed suit quickly. I quietly called for my dog to come to me, and we hunkered down in my bedroom. Thankfully, my room is on the second floor, so I thought I wouldn't have to worry about that thing seeing us. I locked my door and put my dresser in front of the door, hoping if that monster found its way inside, I'd be able to hold it at bay for at least a while. I have a decently powerful shotgun, a Remington 870, if you're interested. I grabbed it and loaded it, just in case. So there I sat on my bed, gun in hand, with my scared dog, listening to that thing pace and grunt around my house throughout the night. At daybreak, I slowly moved the dresser away from the door and slinked downstairs, looking out my windows around the cabin, and I saw nothing. I let out a sigh of relief and called my dog down. Because screw this place and screw these woods, I grabbed the keys to my jeep and left. The woods around my house were bone-chillingly silent that morning, and if you know anything about the woods, that is not a good sign. As I made my way to my jeep, I looked around, and I spotted it, that thing, standing about 100 feet away from us. I wasted little time unloading the shotgun in its direction, hoping that I hit it. I think I did, because the thing let out a scream so horrid, it was almost louder than my shotgun. It ran off, but I didn't see where it went, and I didn't care. I ran to the jeep and opened the door for my dog and myself to get in. I sped down that dirt road at breakneck speed, when, of course, what do I see standing on the side of the road? That same beast. I sped up, and I was able to make it out of the woods, wondering how that thing caught up with me. I made it into town at record speed. Once I slowed down, I caught my breath and composed myself, then decided to drive to the nearest big city in my state, because I can't bring myself to go back there alone. Me and some friends are going to go up there to clear out my house, and I'll never see that place again. It'll be nice to be in the city again, at least. As an update, when we did go up there to move my things out, I saw it again. It came out of the woods and seemed to just watch us, and apparently the few slugs I fired at it didn't seem to do anything to it. Thankfully, my friends are interested in guns too, and had brought their assortment of firearms, just in case it got ballsy. Before long, we finished packing up in the car. We started to pull out when I realized one of my friends wasn't there with us, he hadn't gotten in the car. We immediately went back down the driveway and searched the premises, looking for my now missing friend. 
I hoped we would have found him in the house, distracted or something. But no, it was worse than that. We found him outside, barely conscious, claw marks and bite marks on him. We got him into the car and sped to the nearest hospital. When we were asked what happened, we didn't know what to say. We couldn't just say that some wolf-like humanoid thing mauled him, so we said it was a bear. Luckily, he's slated to make a full recovery, but that was just too close for me. Any part of me that still wanted to live there died that day. And that's all for now. I'm thankfully safe living with my parents until I find a new place. Long story short, you can never be too comfortable living alone in the woods. You may just find yourself dead. Dogman Infestation from Mallory K. I'm going to start out by saying that I'm sorry. Don't assume this is one of those stories where I pass the monster from my head into yours. I just need to get this known. I'm Palestinian, and we have our own version of the dogman called the Golfalfa. I always assumed it was fake. As the story goes, supposedly, one of the high-up members in Hamas and a member of the Directorate of Paranormal Defense struck a deal with intelligent creatures that were not human, that had fur and could speak Pasinda. To me, this origin story sounded like something made up to give hope to Palestinians, sort of like a we-can-do-anything propaganda. But some people swear up and down it was true. I didn't believe any of this, not until I went to America and had an experience for myself. My cousin and I came to Michigan to film his latest propaganda film. We were staying at this cabin in Higgins Lake, which had to be at least 500 kilometers of forest, with caves scattered throughout. We went to shoot a scene in the forest. My cousin thinks we should shoot it at night. We did this for many nights and days. It was fine for three weeks, but come the third day of week four, we're packing up our equipment from a hard day of filming, when we begin to hear scratching and growls. My cousin looks content, almost as if he'd heard a friend's voice. I find this strange. This goes on for six nights, always between 8pm and 6am. On the eighth day after the first incident, we see scratch marks on the side of the cabin. My cousin almost cries, but it seemed more like tears of joy. On the fourteenth day, we see fur stuck in the thornback strawberry bush. My cousin speaks under his breath, Kumatulo, which to my knowledge at the time was gibberish. On the seventeenth day, I see at the back of the cabin something that I thought was a wolf. But it made no sense, this was Michigan. I didn't think there were wolves in this part of USA. Then, I swear, I see it stand up on two legs. It's bipedal. My cousin comes into my room and says to me, Mallory, are you need be of the sleep? He doesn't speak good English. I reply, telling him what I just saw. He sits me down and tells me the same story he always told me. 
that Palestine made a pact with the Golfalfa. I honestly called bullcrap, but I was truly considering what he was saying for the first time in my life, as if it might be true. The twenty-eighth day was the worst. My cousin calls me outside to watch the stars, as we don't get much of that in Palestine. When I go outside, this creature comes around the bend. At first I don't see it, but I hear a familiar phrase, Fala majirka gudar mayari That is Pasenda for, it's been so long, friend. My cousin stands up and says again, Gumadulo, and starts to approach this beast. That's when I realized my cousin was a maniac, not only a psychopath, but a suicidal idiot. After what felt like hours, but was probably closer to five seconds, my cousin spoke in Pasinda again. Ha, pire, camarade. Or, hello, comrade. And this wolf begins speaking in Pasinda. I don't know what was said because I was too terrified and confused. As soon as I'm about to run away, my cousin stops me, telling me not to run. My cousin then bends down to say something. I realize then there were two smaller figures, too. What he says I didn't hear, but then he says, Pazfa Kaul Hirda, or May We Meet Again. At that moment, I understood his story might be true. We had something to do with them. He wasn't a liar or a suicidal idiot. He behaved as a savior or family to them. The fact that these dogman stories involve assaults or even death, I can't help but feel at fault. Now you understand why I apologized. We Palestinians believe these things to be intelligent, emotional beasts, and that we may have something to do with this infestation. I do believe my cousin did what was best for them, but not for humanity. I can't explain why, but he has an unrealistic attachment to these beasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.